Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Tuesday, the 27th of July, and I have official word for you today. Paul um, Perot, let me bring you on here for a moment. Okay. You have heard the phrase, until the cows come home. Oh, yes. I was a exactly dairy farmer. How, know it very well. Exactly how long is that? It's an... There mm-hmm. really isn't a time I now know. Oh, yeah. no. You now know? No, no. Oh. I now know. <laughs> I mean, I don't yet know what it feels like to see pigs fly or for cows to jump over the moon. But I can officially report this morning that I know the precise length of time that it takes for the cows to come home. Okay. Mark this down. Four days, 14 hours, and seven minutes until the cows come home. (laughs) They're home. They're They're home. home. They're home. I mean, it took four days, 14 hours, and seven minutes, but the cows are officially home. Yay! So now you know... The rest of the story. Well, no, you don't. You don't. You don't know the whole story because it is. It, it was quite <clears throat> a show yesterday to get the cows home. But the cows are home. So, in other news, scientists in Dubai are making it rain. Uh, it's 120 degrees in Dubai, and so the scientists there sent drones up into, uh, up into well, what to create clouds, actually, and increase rainfall. So rain-making technology, it's also known as cloud seeding. The the technology's not new. The use of it uh, just to make it rain to bring down the heat in a city is new, uh, according to the article I'm reading today. So um, just in terms of things that we are able to do, uh, things that we're able to control, things over which God has made us stewards, I guess if you think back to Genesis chapter 1, um, when God sets us as stewards over all creation, you know, both of these stories are a part of that. Um, you know, I don't have sheep, so I'm not shepherds of a of a sheeply flock, but, you know, we are the stewards of the animals who live on our farm, and we are also stewards of the science and technology that God makes us uh, able to steward in these days. So reading the story of these scientists in Dubai making it rain to bring down the temperature in the city— Brought to mind Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, where Jesus says about the character of God, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. It's kind of a weather verse of sorts, but it's also uh, a revelation about the nature of the character of God. So regardless of a person's disposition toward God, God is going to let the sun shine upon them and let the rain fall on their land uh, equally. This is one of those no... Uh, God makes no distinction between the evil and the righteous in terms of those kinds of blessings that he pours out upon us all. He gives good gifts to everyone. Is that unfair? Yes, absolutely. Gloriously unfair. Absolutely. There was also uh, a meteor, a big meteor overhead in Norway that's making the news across Europe 
which reminded me again of the opening verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, no words uh, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That's um, it's a declaration of how it is that uh, the, the moon and the stars and the sun declare the glory of God day in and day out, even when, even when we fail to. All right, next up, we're going to have a conversation uh, with a representative from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. They have uh, been to court and they have prevailed. This is the University of Iowa case that we have talked about in the past. Uh, Greg Yao joins us next. We'll be right back. Keep moving, moving, moving. All right, Greg Yao joins me now from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Greg, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for having me on. Good morning. Abs- uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, all right, so remind us for you know for folks who might have slept since then or paid attention to something other than this InterVarsity story at the University of Iowa. Remind us about the case and then give us the good news today. Great. Well, in 2018, the University of Iowa de-recognized 38 religious groups on campus, uh, including University Christian Fellowship, but also a Muslim and a Sikh group. And they said um, that we violated their non-discrimination policy because we required our leaders, in our case, to be Christians. And InterVarsity sued on our behalf, but also on behalf of those other religious student groups. And just about a week ago, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals told the university that it was hard-pressed to find a clearer example of viewpoint discrimination and found that uh, they had violated the First Amendment. And uh, as a result, InterVarsity and the other groups will be able to be on campus and be on campus as fully recognized student groups, which is incredibly important as we try to reach out to students uh, beginning again this fall. So 2018 um, feels to me, in terms of the academic cycle, like pretty much the entire tenure of um, a regular student. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons we work so hard to make sure that chapters uh, of InterVarsity can be on campus and are on campus full time. Uh, If you were a freshman in 2018, um, almost your entire college experience Uh, would have been with the religious student groups on campus being told by the university, you are not welcome here. And um, in some cases being unable to function. And because of that, uh, it's important that there aren't these kind of breaks in service as we try to fight these cases uh, around the country. So when the court says we're hard pressed to find a clearer example of viewpoint discrimination, um, maybe share with those who are listening, you know, when we talk about viewpoint discrimination, we're not just talking, and I, I appreciate this about this case, we're not just talking about the opportunity of Christians to share our worldview with others, let's say on a, on a university or college campus. We're actually, you know, saying, hey, we, we want every viewpoint to be made available. We feel like in the marketplace of ideas, um, you know, we, we actually do know the truth and the truth will prevail. Talk with us a little bit about the experience of you know, being in in conversation and in league with, let's say, these Muslim community or 
student groups and the Sikh community and, and university groups as well. Yeah, that was one of the reasons university decided to file a lawsuit. In general, we don't want to sue universities. It's suing your mission field. Uh, we'd much rather find ways <laughs> around this. Um, but the university refused to relent, and we realized it wasn't just university that we were defending. Um, there were, as I mentioned, 38 religious groups that were told they were no longer welcome on campus. And uh, with both the Muslim and the Sikh group, we realized um, most religious groups don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. to pursue a lawsuit or to even pursue uh, long-term negotiation with the university. Um, and we decided to work with the Beckett Fund, uh, who are fantastic, uh, to sue because we realized universities and our country do better when laws that protect Christians are used to protect everybody. And the First Amendment needs to apply to every religious group. Uh, if it applies and protects Christians, it should apply and protect non-Christian religions as well. And one of the reasons I'm so convinced about that is I know if a Muslim group is able to be removed from campus because a university administrator does not like what they believe, there's no protection for that same administrator to say, I don't like what Christians believe, I'm going to remove them as well. And so as we work on protecting the religious liberties of all religious groups, Um, I believe our religious liberties are protected as well. And I think the other thing that it does is it removes um, the accusation, well, you're just trying to protect uh, Christian privilege. You're just trying to protect Christian religious groups. And our response is, no, in fact, we will support the religious liberties of any religious group because that protects the religious liberties of all religious groups. And that's one of the reasons we love working with the Beckett Fund. Um, They, uh, I think, often say we represent everybody from Anglicans to Zoroastrians, uh, because we believe the First Amendment has to be an umbrella that protects everybody. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Greg Yao in just a moment. We're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And for those of you who uh, don't know what's happening on university campuses today and the vibrant ministry of InterVarsity, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm just a We're talking with Greg Yao from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Um, Greg, so now that this particular challenge uh, has been resolved, I mean, that's it, right? Like, you, you know, this this now prevails and InterVarsity faces no challenges on any college campus across the country and around the world. Oh, if that were only the case. Um, <laughs> a colleague of mine described this problem as kind of whack-a-mole, if anybody remembers that game. Um, we just finished a lawsuit with... Um, against Wayne State University in Michigan, which in which we prevailed. Uh, and we have this uni- uh, case at the University of Iowa, but there are ongoing issues on campuses around the country where university administrators will say, we don't believe religious groups can choose their leaders using religious criteria because that violates the non-discrimination policy uh, because it um, it's discriminatory against people of other religions. And we keep trying to point out, actually, um, it's important for religious groups like InterVarsity to say, our worship leaders and our prayer leaders, our Bible study leaders and our directors of evangelism should be people who share our faith. So um, it's a constant issue on campus. In fact, just last uh, fall, we were working with the University of New Mexico, which decided that they wanted to de-recognize us. And we had to point out why it did not make sense for their non-discrimination uh, policy to penalize religious groups for wanting religious leadership rather than protect us when we want that. You know, I think that for 
for those listening, you know, we're saying to ourselves right now, okay, it doesn't even make any sense, this this idea that you would de-recognize an organization in this time of um, everyone sort of declaring unto themselves who they are and what they believe and why that should matter to everyone else. Um, so that's part of, I think, the the broad conversation in the culture. Like, what does it even mean to be de-recognized by a university? So can you unpack that a little bit? Because it's not as if if I just wanted to walk onto a university campus and start an organization, I can't do that. There are rules and regulations related to specifically being on campus. So talk with us about why it's important for you at InterVarsity to be on campus and then what it means to be recognized on campus. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, recognition gives university student groups like InterVarsity a chance to be at student activities fairs where you get to meet new students. It allows you to advertise easily on campus. And most importantly for our chapters, it allows you to reserve rooms on campus so that we can create witnessing communities of students and faculty on campus that are reaching their friends and colleagues without having to invite them to leave the campus and meet us somewhere else. And I think what's happening on campus, but around the United States, is we're in a fundamental reassessment of religious identities. Are they valued in the same way that other identities might be, whether it's gender, um, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or other categories? And we're trying to decide um, how fundamental are religious beliefs? And what deference should religious beliefs be given uh, in the case, um, particularly around selecting leadership? And we're grateful that the Supreme Court, in a series of rulings, has affirmed religious groups should be given great deference in the ways they choose their religious leaders, because the way that you maintain the faith um, with integrity and fidelity to your tradition is to have leaders who share that faith. And they also know the easiest way to cause a religious group to go off the rails is to um, change their leaders. And so I think what's happening on campus is a microcosm of what you're seeing around the country. And and everyone who's listening right now is nodding their head up and down because they've at least experienced this in the local church or nationally in a, in a denomination if they haven't actually experienced it in the context of a college campus. One of the things that you said, Greg, that I think I'm hoping piqued the interest of others, it certainly piqued my interest you talked about creating witnessing communities of students and faculty. You know, faculty are around longer than students are. I remember my experience at the University of Florida, and had there not been one particular faculty member who I knew was a person of faith, I knew he was a Christian. I mean, he didn't talk about that in the classroom, but I knew it, and I was able to, you know, to, to key off of that, and it really did significantly influenced my experience at that very secular university. Talk about the participation of faculty in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, because I think for a lot of people listening, that's going to be like, that's an eyebrow raiser. That's exciting. Yeah, there's a a myth, I think, out there that all faculty are antagonistic toward Christians. And in fact, over 4,000 faculty are involved on a regular basis uh, with InterVarsity's ministries, ministering to other faculty. And what we're finding is that there's enormous hunger for spiritual growth among faculty, as well as great openness to the faith. So, for example, at Northwestern University, one of my colleagues hosted a faculty roundtable where Christians and non-Christians were invited to come and hear a Christian faculty member talk about um, what is the mind and how do we understand it. 900 faculty from around the country joined that webinar in order to have a conversation about what does it mean uh, what does the mind mean and how does how does that affect us? We had another 
Um, 400 faculty join us on a faculty roundtable in the Northeast on the issue of racism because they wanted to understand how to apply their Christian faith along with their academic disciplines to this intractable problem in the United States. And um, it's been delightful to watch. And what I love is that these faculty are gathering together for prayer, for Bible study, and for opportunities to share their faith with their fellow faculty colleagues. Yeah, it's just, it's so exciting. All right, um, for folks who are listening right now, Greg, and who don't understand the importance of Christian outreach, like InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, but others as well, don't understand the importance of it in terms of this age group, uh, these students um, during the period of time that they are on an academic campus. Talk with us about this particular age group and why um, the mission of InterVarsity matters right now. Yeah, thanks for asking. InterVarsity serves on um, just about 750 campuses around the country, and we are meeting um, students as they leave high schools and in their homes to think for the first time, really, as adults, what do they believe and how do they want to live? And what we know from research, from LifeWay research, that 60% of all church kids who go to college will walk away from the church for at least a year while they're at college. And ministries like InterVarsity and our colleagues at Crew, NAVS, and other groups are there to meet Christian students, to give them, like your college professor when you, you were at the University of Florida, a plausible, reasonable, winsome group of Christians who can show them you can keep your faith and deepen it into a vibrant adult faith in college if you're willing to invest in Bible study, prayer, and fellowship. And we're reaching out to not yet Christians who are asking questions about what does life about? What does, what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? And to say, you will best find meaning and purpose in your life by becoming a follower of Jesus. And so we're watching thousands of students every year turn their life to Jesus. And this is particularly important with this generation, which is the generation that has the highest rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation of any generation in history. And so there's an incredible personal need that they're facing. There's incredible opportunity as they're thinking about the future. And we believe creating communities of students on campus who can say, you could become a follower of Jesus uh, with your mind intact, uh, caring deeply about the world and um, finding uh, meaning and purpose in the story that Jesus tells about what's the meaning of life and where do you find hope and happiness, which will be through Jesus' death and resurrection. For folks who have uh, who've been a part of this listening community for some period of time, they are hearing you check off all of the boxes of identity, belonging, and purpose, which we recognize are the really big questions that everybody's asking, and certainly uh, college-age students are asking. And so thank you so very much for your ongoing ministry. Please pass along our gratitude to everybody at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Greg Yao, uh, CCO of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. You guys can uh, can check out everything that uh, University Christian Fellowship is doing online and on a campus near you. We'll be right back. Do you have kids? Do you know people who have kids? Are you in a church where there are kids? Well, guess what's on the rise in a family, in a neighborhood, uh, certainly in a church near you? That would be homeschooling. Homeschooling has surged across the United States in recent months, certainly a what I will call a silver lining of the COVID pandemic. 
And to talk with us next about it, Lindsay Burke from the Heritage Foundation. We'll be right back. Nobody's perfect. Nobody makes it through life without hurting others and getting hurt in the process. Relationships are messy. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you have a teen in your family, you know what it feels like to be hurt, disrespected, or ignored. But you have a choice in the middle of all of this. You can love your kids even when you feel like they don't deserve it. Relationships are messy. And I've learned over the years that if I walk away from someone every time they offend me, I allow their actions to determine the future of our relationship. That's not what any parent wants. This time around, choose to show love, even when the kids don't deserve it. Find more parenting help from Mark Gregston at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Lindsay Burke is the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. She oversees the foundation's research and policy on issues pertaining to preschool, K-12, and higher education reform. She joins us today to talk about the surge in homeschooling across America. Lindsay, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you. So let's um, let's just start with the numbers. You know, how many American families were homeschooling maybe prior to the pandemic and how many uh, are doing it now and plan to continue even as schools reopen? Right. So we really have seen a pretty significant increase. The U.S. Census Bureau has been tracking the number of families who are homeschooling during the pandemic and who were homeschooling directly prior to the pandemic. And prior to the pandemic, about 5%, it was 5.4% of households across the country were homeschooling their children. And then by September of 2020, so once the school year started off last year, that number had increased to 11%. So that means that the percentage of families who were homeschooling had more than doubled by the time the pandemic hit uh, and the school year started last year. And I think what's interesting is that uh, black households actually saw the largest jump in homeschooling among that population. The rate of African-American families who homeschool. All right. We uh, we just had a little technology glitch and lost Dr. Burke. Paul will work diligently to get her back. Um, the The comment that she was making there or the observation that she was making there about the uh, the rise in the use of homeschooling among African-American families. It is the, uh, the subset of the population where homeschooling grew the most. Um, the Census Bureau, the U.S. Census Bureau, reported in March that the rate of households homeschooling their kids rose to 11 percent by September of 2020. It'll be interesting to see as we go back to school in the fall of 2021, what that looks like. Black households saw the largest jump. That's what Dr. Burke was commenting on there. Their homeschooling rate rose from 3.3% in the spring of 2020 to 16.1% in the fall. All right, Dr. Burke, we have you back now. Um, let's do this for our listeners. For folks who, you know, 
They they had kids. Their kids went to school. Those kids have now graduated. They don't really know what homeschooling is. Um, when we talk about homeschooling, what are we talking about? Great. So sorry about the, the technical glitch there, but I think, you know, homeschooling now has become so much more, I, I think, both uh, just well-received in the population broadly, and one might even say sophisticated, right? I mean, if you think about what folks thought about homeschooling maybe 20 or 30 years ago, I think it's really taken shape in a different way. And that thinks in large part to things like homeschooling co-ops, where families who homeschool gather together and share their resources with each other, share curriculum, uh, and sometimes even share tutors and have different family members tutoring. Uh, The internet really changed the game too in terms of homeschooling where you have all of the resources in the world, curriculum resources, really at the tip of your fingers. And so that has enabled families, I think, to have in, in part a greater degree of confidence when it comes to homeschooling. And so it really is something that is collaborative among other families uh, and has really benefited just a wide range of students. I mean, we we were talking a minute ago about the fact that black uh, families saw this significant increase in homeschooling. So I think what's interesting will be to see the extent to which these increases hold over the next few years. So I have a why question listed here. Um, I think that there were, I mean, all of us, all of us uh, were initially pushed into some version of homeschooling by the pandemic when schools just totally shut down at spring break more than a year ago now, um, more than a full academic year ago. Um, So initially, you know, people were pushed into it involuntarily. But we discovered a lot about our kids and ourselves and uh, and education while we were at home. Can you comment on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think you really nailed it, that we all became accidental homeschoolers last year, where you had families across the country, almost without exception, who were forced into this option. Now, homeschooling is fantastic, but it may not have been the right fit for every single family who found themselves to be accidental homeschoolers. But for many, you're exactly right. They really enjoyed the experience, the ability to sit down one-on-one with their children or with other families and really work together on those, those lessons. And, you know, I would add that what we saw last year, it was just so interesting. It was really a civil society response to school closures that were precipitated by Uh, government-induced school closures as a result of the pandemic. We saw families forming pandemic pods, a little different than homeschooling, but families getting together, pooling their resources, hiring teachers and private tutors to come to their homes and to teach groups of students together. I mean, this, this was just such an interesting development and what we have thought historically to be homeschooling. And so that's something that I hope we see in the future. And with some policy changes that we're starting to see states adopt, I think we could see that become more and more of a reality moving forward, that you see these small groups of families banding together to create, whether it's pandemic pods or micro schools, but small collaborative groups where their children are learning together. I think that will become much more popular, uh, regardless of where the pandemic is in the next few years. So, Lindsay, we have a um, a listener making an astute observation here um, saying, hey, I think I remembered you talking about a widening uh, racial disparity, a widening gap um, in terms of achievement during the pandemic where, you know, set 
uh, let's see, let me read their comment, set uh, black children back even further, creating a wider gap in racial disparity in education. Um, I mean, I recognize this is a little bit off topic, but there is something that is related to access to resources or the ability to stay home and homeschool. Um, It's not for everybody. We recognize that. And so, you know, when we talk about who's going to take advantage of this, um, we also recognize that there are just a a lot of kids who have been left behind dramatically during the pandemic. Yeah, well, your your listener's right. I mean, this is something that McKinsey and company have found over the past uh, year and a half now is that we've seen learning loss among all students as a result of school closures, the equivalent of, you know, a month up to three months worth of, of learning. But for minority children in particular, that learning loss was estimated to be much greater, five, six months, even a year by some estimates. And so you're right, there is a a discrepancy there. And so the remedy, I think, and perhaps this is why we're seeing uh, a greater increase in homeschooling among African-American families, but you're right in that families need access broadly to these options. This is where the public policy response has to come into play. And we've seen this, and I'm very optimistic we'll see more of it. Just look at what happened this past uh, legislative session. We saw West Virginia get into place the very first nearly universal education savings account in the country. And so what that means is that every single student in West Virginia who is currently in a public school moving forward, if they want, can instead get an ESA, an education savings account. And at that point, they will be able to use their share of their public education dollars that would have been spent on them in a West Virginia public school, and they will be able to pay for private school if they want, or if they don't want to go to a brick-and-mortar school, they can pay for a private tutor, they can buy curricula and textbooks, they can pay for online courses. I mean, this is what has to happen long-term if we want to make sure every child, every single child, has access to learning options that are the right fit for them. We have to move toward policies where we fund children directly rather than physical school buildings that we then assign them to. All right, I'm talking with Dr. Lindsay Burke from the Heritage Foundation. We're going to continue this conversation about the homeschool boom across the country, but also public policy related to education here in the United States of America. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. All right, I'm dancing because Schoolhouse Rock, man, that was part of my education when I was a kid for sure. Talking to Dr. Lindsay Burke from the Heritage Foundation. If you're not familiar uh, with Heritage, we invite you to check it out. Certainly check out what Lindsay is working on as well in the area of school choice and the advocacy of real policy change at uh, both the state and national level related to your family's choices and the education of your children. Lindsay, let's talk about school choice. You introduced um, maybe a lot of people listening right now to this education savings account idea, this ESA Maybe folks don't have any idea what that is, but can you talk with us about uh, school choice in particular and then um, the pushback that people are experiencing and may expect to see in their own communities as more and more people choose against public education, as we have traditionally thought of it, and are choosing alternatives for their children? 
Well, this idea of school choice has been around for quite some time now. We can look back to an essay written by Nobel Prize-winning economist Milton Friedman all the way back in 1955 when he first introduced the idea. And he said, you know, yes, let's publicly finance education. Let's publicly fund K-12 education. But the public financing of education does not require government delivery of schooling. And that was a really important insight. And that basically laid the groundwork for what he said should be a separation of the financing of education from the administration of services. And the way that he put that forward was through a school voucher model. And so that was back in 1955. And honestly, it remained an academic idea for quite some time until 1990. In 1990, we saw the first modern-day school voucher program put into place, and that was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And basically, what that meant was that children who qualified could receive the money that would have been spent on them, and they're assigned public school in the form of a scholarship, in the form of a coupon that they could then use to pay tuition at a private school. And that's a fantastic option. We saw school voucher programs increase in popularity throughout the 1990s and, and really in the 2000s. And then we saw similar options like tax credit scholarships pop up, very similar to vouchers, but they're funded with private funds. And then in 2011, we saw this real uh, refinement of the school voucher model when, what I mentioned earlier, education savings accounts became a reality. Arizona was the first state to create education savings accounts where they said, you as a student, if you are eligible, you can receive 90% of what the state of Arizona would have spent on you in your assigned public school. And so it only includes state funding. So there's no federal money involved. There's no local money implicated. But at that point, you get 90% of your state per pupil funds. You exit the public system. And then, like I said, you can pay for private school tuition, online learning, special education services and therapies if your child needs it. You can buy curricula, textbooks, et cetera. You can really customize your child's education. And I think what's so interesting about an ESA is that you can roll over unused funds from year to year. And I'll just say quickly, you know, there's a, a principle behind this um, that Friedman had laid out as well, where he said, you know, there are four ways you can basically spend money. You can spend your own money on yourself. You can spend your own money on somebody else. You can spend somebody else's money on yourself, or you can spend somebody else's money on somebody else. And that's how public schools spend money, right? They spend somebody else's money, your taxpayer dollars, on somebody else's children. And so they have no incentive to economize or to maximize value. With an ESA, you get much closer to spending your own money on your own children. And so you have every reason to economize, to maximize value, and to find the perfect education options for your child. So I guarantee you, Lindsay, there are people listening right now who are like, why aren't we having like broader conversations about this? Or why aren't we having or hearing conversations about this in our own communities? How could I influence public policy in my own state related to this? Can you invite people you know, to be equipped on, uh, in this particular area? Yeah, so there, there are a couple of ways to start. Uh, one, I would say go to edchoice.org. Edchoice uh, is a foundation that Milton Friedman actually created uh, quite a few years ago. It used to be called the Friedman Foundation. But you can go to edchoice.org and you can click on your state 
and you can see what school choice programs currently exist, if any. And so that's a really good place to start. See if you have access to vouchers or tax credits or education savings accounts. Um, and then if not, my recommendation would be to look at what state think tank is working on this in your state. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll mention, for example, uh, West Virginia, which got an ESA in place last year. They have a great think tank there, the Cardinal Institute, that really worked hard to make it happen, laid the intellectual groundwork to do it, really, you know, worked hand in glove with parents to get it right. And so talk to, to those local groups there. Um, but it, it really is, I think, you know, equip yourself with what options are already there and then start making the case, work with other parents, form groups of parents. And this really applies to, to more than just the school choice fight, which is eminently important, particularly, unfortunately, as the teachers unions are already signaling that they have concerns about reopening schools this fall. So it is critically important that we get school choice options in place yesterday. Um, but, you know, this applies to, to many more issues, right? Parents right now have a lot of concern about the content that is being taught in public schools across the country. Band together with other parents, get groups together, go to your local school board meetings. That is so important to make your voice heard at those local school board meetings because school boards really do have all the decision-making authority when it comes to what happens in your local public school. I'm making a list. All right, um, because I think that what you're sharing is really helpful and People need to be equipped. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there, Lindsay, that scares us as parents. Um, and there's a ton going on inside the classroom that we did not know about. I think that part of the discovery that we made when our kids came home, uh, spring break of 2019, <laughs> and have never left. Um, one of the things that we uh, became you know, really aware of was not only the content of what was being taught, but what wasn't being taught or how little time our kids were actually spending in um, in instructional time. Um, so for those of us, I happen to, happen to have a special needs child, and I was stunned that the requirement is 20 minutes, 20 minutes of instructional, uh, instructional time per hour for five hours a day. So yeah, 20 minutes, stunning. 20 minutes of every hour that he was at public school, that's all they're required. And so then on the days that he was able to go, that other students were not able to go for whatever reason, they couldn't provide him more than the 20 minutes that was being provided online to other students because that would have not been equitable. And I'm like, okay, he's with you. He's actually there, and you're going to not provide him with services that he could be provided because kids who can't come for whatever reason and are still attending virtually and online are only being provided that 20 minutes an hour. I mean, I'm just stunned by it. And I love, and I happen to love, you know, the school where we are. And But, but it was stunning to me how little time is actually spent in what I would consider instructional uh, education. Yeah, you bring up an important point, right, that you can love your child's local school, and so many families do, but even then, the school can be hampered by bureaucracy, right, right. by rules and regulations that really impede their ability to serve children well. And again, you know, this all comes back to making financing more flexible you know, there's a reason why historically school choice programs for students with special needs have been the fastest growing types of school choice programs in the country. Because so often, unfortunately, families end up in a really um, what can end up being a litigious process with their assigned public school over the services to which their children are entitled 
under federal law, making sure that their children are actually getting what they're entitled to. And so there are reforms that could happen with the financing geared towards students with special needs, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, a federal law that provides additional federal funding for that population, make those dollars student-centered and portable, enable families to, for instance, stay in their public school, but then leverage those additional dollars to get outside services if the public school is not providing what they need. So there are many reforms that could be put into place if we think creatively about what financing looks like moving forward. But on the content, you're exactly right. So many parents were frustrated, not only with how little they were getting, uh, how little civics instruction I would add in particular, but then when they were getting it, the type of content that they were seeing make its way into the public education system. There is quite a debate right now happening in the states and at local school boards in particular about things like critical race theory in public schools today. And so that's something that parents really, you know, they got a front row seat during the pandemic when everybody became an accidental homeschooler and they could see the type of content that their children were receiving day after day. Lindsay Burke from the Heritage Foundation. You guys can find Lindsay at heritage.org. She also highlighted for us edchoice.org for resources related to this. As we move from uh, being accidental homeschool parents to, well, maybe intentional homeschool parents. It's a surge across the country. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll be right back. All right. uh, Thank you for um, all of your encouraging comments on the text line this morning. Remember, you can text me during the show at 877-933-2484. Lots of people giving a shout out to the state of Wisconsin uh, for being, I don't know, first in terms of school vouchers for kids. Uh, Others of you saying, hey, this is a great conversation. I think this is exactly what we need. This is the kind of educational reform we need in America. In order to see that happen, each and every one of us has to get involved at the very local level. Why are we educating our kids? What does it mean to raise them up in every way into full maturity as Christ followers? What does it look like and mean to uh, have their little minds grow and be filled and with what and by whom? Like, right? Those are all really good questions to be asking today about discipleship and education. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Just a reminder, you got great resources available at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.